Well, do please, uh, if you have your Bible open, keep it open. That would be a great help as we look at the passage together. Let me just pray as we begin. Our Father, we thank you so much for what you revealed to us in your word. And as we look at it now, I pray that you would help us to see the glory and the majesty and the wonder of the Lord Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder what it is that you're afraid of. For me, definitely right up at the top of the list is horses. I think they're beautiful, but they're best at some distance. I'm not sure actually whether it's, it's almost perhaps an equal first is roller coasters. There is no pleasure for me in a roller coaster. They are terrifying in prospect. And the few times that I've ventured onto them, feeling I need to, because I'm with my young children who are desperate to go on, that 90-second ride is like all eternity. But actually, in a sense, that's a, a simple fear, isn't it? I can avoid horses and enjoy looking at them from the other side of the fence. I can almost kind of enjoy watching other people on a roller coaster, although it makes me feel a bit squiffy sometimes. But what are you afraid of that leaves you completely powerless? Something over which you just have no idea how to resolve. And as we played the game earlier, uh, when Jeanette was here, who do you call? Well, I wonder where you're at with anxiety and fears and worry at the moment. In a couple of weeks, fortnight tomorrow, the next stage of COVID restrictions easing takes place. I wonder how you feel about that. Are you excited? I can't wait. I've got all these plans. Oh, but hang on a minute. I'm a bit worried that those plans might be scuppered. We might get hit by another wave. Something dreadful might happen, as so often it does. Well, perhaps you're not excited about it. Perhaps you think, oh, I'm not sure about that. It's all a bit too much, and it's all a bit too soon. And maybe, perhaps related to COVID, perhaps other things, there are other anxieties, like... How secure is your job? How secure is your income? Maybe you've lost your job and you're not sure how you're going to pay the rent or pay the mortgage or clothe the family and feed yourselves. Well, today's passage, wherever you are on that spectrum of anxiety, is just for those with those anxieties. Because in today's passage, we meet with Jesus and we see how Jesus comes and meets us in the midst of our anxieties. He gives us all we need to be freed from anxiety and fear. Now just to put it into a little bit of context, if you were with us, whether online or here in church last week, you'll have noticed that in chapter 5 we saw that John referred to a number of witnesses to point us to Jesus. There was John the Baptist. There were the miracles. There was God the Father. There's the scriptures. And within the scriptures, Moses. 
all pointing to the Lord Jesus. And now, in chapter 6, we see a number of what I'm calling shadows of the Old Testament that all place what we've just had read into the context of a bigger picture of the story of Scripture. So let's have a a quick overview of those Old Testament shadows. Uh, We have Moses. Do you remember uh, way back in the story of Exodus, Moses rescues the Israelites from Egyptian slavery? Events that the people of Israel remembered and still do to this day with the Passover festival. And then in New Testament times we have Jesus bringing rescue from sin through his death and resurrection, events that we particularly remember regularly with the Lord's Supper. And today, as we see Jesus controlling nature and walking on water as if the water was dry ground, you may recall in the Exodus story, as Moses led the people away from Egypt, they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then, miraculously, the Lord provided for them food in the form of manna from heaven. And now, in John's Gospel, we have the Lord Jesus feeding 5,000 people equally miraculously with bread and a couple of small fish. And if you scan ahead, if your Bible's open to next week's passage in verse 31, the people following Jesus made that connection between that miracle and the manna. And then in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15, we have Moses prophesying that there would be another prophet coming like him, another prophet like Moses. And in our story today, Jesus was recognized, wasn't he? He must be the prophet, the one who was spoken of. And hence the crowd longing to make him king by force. And you may recall back in the Exodus story that Moses went up onto Mount Sinai. Do you remember why he ascended Mount Sinai? To meet with the Lord. And in today's story, Jesus goes up a mountain alone. And although John doesn't mention it, the other gospel writers tell us that he went up on the mountain alone to pray, to meet with his heavenly Father. You see, it all points to Jesus being a new and better Moses, the anticipated Messiah, fulfilling all those Old Testament prophecies. And just as the Lord provided manna in the wilderness, Jesus provides bread on the grassy slope on the side of a mountain, just to the east of Galilee. Indeed, as we'll see in more detail next week in verses 33 to 35, it says, For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. So the feeding of the 5,000, clearly an amazing miracle, is a really important miracle. In fact, it's the only miracle, apart from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, it's the only one recorded by all four of the gospel writers. And that is immediately followed by that 
other miracle of Jesus apparently defying the laws of nature and walking on the water, which is also recorded by Matthew and Mark. So what's so important about them? How do these signs show us that Jesus is the Son of God? How do they show us that Jesus is the better Moses, the prophet prophesied from of old? Well, let's have a look at uh, those two miracles in turn. Um, With the feeding of the 5,000, I've headed this Jesus, the abundant giver. And you'll remember that, uh, you'll see earlier in our passage today in verse 2, that the miracles that Jesus has already done have drawn attention. Have they attracted this huge crowd? It's not surprising, is it? When you see somebody doing extraordinary things, you think, hang on a minute, let's have a look at that. And they followed him to the area around Bethsaida on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, up on the northeast shore. And as they're all there, this huge crowd of people, Jesus is concerned for them, for their need of food. Where are they going to be able to eat? Now, Philip was with Jesus at the time. We know from chapter 1 that Philip came from Bethsaida. uh, And this is close to Bethsaida. So if you like, this is Philip's home turf. Pretty sensible, isn't it, to ask the local guy, where am I going to go and find a supermarket who can knock out enough food for 5,000 people? By the way, 5,000 men, plus all the women and children who would have been with them. So maybe double that number. Philip will know where the local co-op is. Let's ask him. Well, I guess perhaps there's a bit of that in it, but have a notice what it says in verse 6. Jesus asked him, where will we get all this food to feed these people to test him? Why a test? Well, I do wonder whether Jesus was giving Philip the chance to say something like this. There's nowhere around here. I know the area. I grew up here. Definitely no co-op. There used to be a small corner shop, but it went out of business. There's no way we can provide food in this area for all these people. But I know you, Lord. I know that the signs that you've been doing already have drawn this huge crowd. And I know from them that you can do extraordinary things. And I trust you. You'll notice he missed that opportunity. Instead, he simply kind of leapt into some kind of identification of what the problem is. Oh, we haven't got enough money. And it would cost a fortune to feed all of these people. And then Andrew, also in problem-solving mode, leaps in. Ah, we have got this young boy here. He's bought a picnic. Three small barley loaves and probably dried or pickled fish as a sort of a relish to add some flavor. In essence, Lord, here's a grossly inadequate, inconsequential amount of food given the number of people that we have in front of us. But you see, Jesus, verse 6, knew what he had planned to do. And it's clear that there are two things that he had planned to do. One is to feed the crowd. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus had compassion on them. But he also 
wanted to teach his disciples and, by extension, us, some important lessons about who he is. The Son of Man, whom God the Father has, on, on whom God the Father had placed his seal of approval. It says is in verse 26 and 27. We'll come to those next week. And so, in this extraordinary place, with this extraordinary number of people, Jesus created an extraordinary amount of food from just a, a few small barley loaves. It is a miracle of creation from the Lord, who in all eternity, part of the Trinitarian God in whom we believe, created the world. And as the creation of the world is a sign of the abundance with which he gives, so this miracle is a sign of the abundance with which Jesus gives locally to those people. He meets their need generously with far more food than was needed. Twelve basketfuls picked up afterwards. There was way more left over at the end than had even been at the beginning. And so the people look at this and they think, well, this is amazing. This must be the prophet. This is him. Let's make him our king. We'll do it by force if we have to. It's an odd thing. I've, not, I've no experience of the way people are made king. But I kind of imagine it's not usually done by force. So why that sudden clamor that this must, this, we must make this man our king? Well, I think to get to the bottom of that, there are two things we, nearly, we really need to understand. Firstly, verse 4, that all this happened at a time when the Passover festival was near. And secondly, that all this happened in the area to the east of the Sea of Galilee, in the region known as Galilee. Uh, interestingly, this is the only chapter in John's Gospel which takes place in this region of Galilee. And that was a poor area. It was a lot of agricultural subsistence farming, and there would have been a daily need to find food, to find provision for the family. So that need for food was constantly in front of the people. And so, of course, such a crowd was impressed by the sign, the feeding of all those people. And they knew their scriptures, they were well taught. And they recognized, here perhaps is the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. This must be him, mustn't it? Surely this is that prophet. Someone who could meet all our physical needs. Let's make him king. And I guess those thoughts would have been confirmed even further because of this closeness of the Passover festival. This would have really had them thinking back to the time when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea to go to the Promised Land. Surely such a powerful, miracle-working prophet could save us from our Roman oppression as well as giving us a decent picnic for lunch. 
And yet, ironically, if you scan ahead to the end of chapter 6 and verse 66, they're all deserting him. They're not interested anymore. You see, Jesus hadn't met their expectations. He wasn't the kind of Messiah that they really were looking for. He'd shown himself to be different. But more of that next week. You see, the crowd had misunderstood who Jesus is, what his mission is. He wasn't a kind of a celebrity leader. His desire wasn't just to give them food and meet their physical needs. Instead, he wanted them to see who he really is so that they could therefore trust him with every aspect of their lives. On that, just by way of reflection and application for us today, you know, Jesus is not a mean, miserable saviour. He's generous. He gives abundantly more than is needed. His grace is not limited. Oh, wouldn't it be awful if it was? It's abundant. It overflows. And because of that, he can meet every need that we have. I do wonder, and I wonder this of myself, and let me challenge you as well. Are we too reticent to come to him in prayer with the things that we're worried about or needful for or doubtful about? Like the leaders of last week that we saw, perhaps we're too self-sufficient, too self-reliant, too independent. I can do it on my own. I don't need any help from you, Lord. Well, amidst whatever your concerns and anxieties may be, whatever the stresses of life, whatever the pressures that you're facing, come to the Lord Jesus. Trust him. He is the creator God. He's unendingly gracious and generous. He provides, not not just skimpily, scrimpily, just a tiny little bit, but abundantly. And let's pray to him with the needs that we have. And I, I got to thinking about what does it mean? What does it really mean today to trust Jesus for everything? Because he's not here physically with us right now. We can't see him. I wonder whether a prayer might involve a little bit like the boy and the disciples with the three loaves and the two fish. They brought them to Jesus and said, look, we've got these. It's not much, but here it is. Maybe in our prayers we need to just bring Jesus what we do have. Maybe the feeble ideas that are in our mind or the worries that we have. Maybe a prayer could look something like this. Lord, I've no idea what to do in this situation. I'm really stuck and I'm really anxious. I know there are some options. I could do this, but I'm really scared about what would happen if I did that. Or I could do this. I really don't know what so-and-so would think of that. I just don't know which way to turn and what to do. Everything seems so uncertain, Lord. Lord, in that, would you give me some wisdom? Could you help me to see a way through? And, and within that, Lord, would you give me peace to enable me to trust you? You see, like the crowd that followed Jesus, we need to see who he is in the truth of his identity if we're really going to trust him 
for all of those things in all of those concerns. So who is he? Who is this Jesus and his true identity? Well, the walking on the water miracle helps us to look at that. And I've subtitled this rather clumsily, Jesus the only freer from fear. Now, in the evening on that day, the disciples um, were expecting Jesus to join them a little bit later on. The other gospel writers tell them that Jesus had sent them on ahead in the boat and he would pray and he'd walk around the top end of the lake and catch up with them later. And here they are halfway across and as often happened on Galilee, the wind whipped up, the waves whipped up. And then, in the darkness... Notice how John specifies the darkness. They see a man walking on the water. I love the way John writes, and they were frightened. They were terrified. You can think, yeah, I possibly think I might have been a tad anxious about that as well. The other gospel writers tell us that they thought it was a ghost. Uh, Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. I suppose put yourself in their boat. You know, what are you supposed to think when you see somebody not in the boat and not sinking? And then, from the darkness, from through the howling wind, through the crashing of the waves, the most beautiful words come to their ears. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, superficially, of course, it is I means it's me, it's Jesus, your friend. I was with you earlier on. I'm, I'm, I made a picnic for everybody. Don't be afraid, I'm here. Everything's going to be fine. There would have been definitely some of that. But if we dig a little bit more deeply, we see in verse 20, the Greek translated as it is I, a little phrase, ego am I, literally translates as I am. It's the identical phrase used by Jesus many times, 24 times, in fact, during the book of John. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. And in John 8, 58, during a bit of a spat between Jesus and the Jews, which, as we know, happened from time to time, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am And this takes us right back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And God's calling a very anxious, very nervous Moses by the burning bush. You may remember the story. Let me read a couple of verses to you. Exodus 3, verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, this, this, by the way, this is when um, the Lord has said to Moses, I I want you to go and speak to Pharaoh and rescue the, the Israelites. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Do you see it? This Jesus prophesied from of old... And now here, in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, is the I am. 
He is claiming to be, and he can claim to be because he is, God. And back in the boat, as soon as they recognized Jesus and heard his voice and brought him aboard, everything was well. And did you notice, just in that last verse that Katie read to us, another miracle happens. Immediately, they were no longer about halfway across the lake, three or four miles over. They were at the other shore. Well, by way of closing, just in application, a couple of things perhaps for us to consider and reflect on. Jesus could say, it is I, don't be afraid, not only because he was the human friend of the disciples in the boat, not only because he could provide moral support, if you like, or even practical Pardon me, even practical support by providing them with that wonderful miracle. But because he is God, the creator, he can do far more. You see, he's not some celebrity, miracle-working performer. He is the God who creates something from nothing. He is the God who provides lavishly and abundantly far more than ever we need. Whatever hardships and challenges life throws, the Lord Jesus provides abundantly. And we're called simply to trust him, aren't we? So whatever circumstances in life cause you anxiety and fear, and as we said before, you know, those things that, not, not the roller coaster things, but the real deep down, I have no idea what to do kind of fears. Out of the darkness of those times, Jesus calls, it is I. Don't be afraid. And that's not some trite, simple, throwaway line that he's making there. It's an offer from the one who can deal with fear. Because he is God. And yes, you may feel alone sometimes, unquestionably. You may feel anxious. It's a normal emotion, isn't it? But when you do, and when you don't know where to turn, look back at this passage, read it over, think about it, and just reflect and meditate on that phrase. It is I. Don't be afraid. The great uh, preacher Spurgeon said, in our darkest hours, we may seem to be left, but we are never really alone. And so as we'll sing, or we'll listen as Naomi sings a little bit later on to us, we can truly uh, sing with Horatio Spafford, it is well with my soul, whatever comes my way. It is well with my soul because of the Lord Jesus who says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do thank you for these 
wonderful accounts in John's Gospel of the miraculous way the Lord Jesus demonstrated his desire and his ability to deliver lavishly and abundantly all the grace we need. That he comes to us in our darkest moments with those beautiful words, it is I, don't be afraid. Father, in your grace and mercy, would you help us by your spirit to hold on to that invitation from Jesus, to trust him, and when we feel the loneliness, to cling to him and realize that we are, as those trusting him, never really alone. In his name. Amen. We're going to continue in prayer as Avril leads us.